welcome to Wednesday night. We're going online only and uh, won't be too long before we're meeting in person. But right now, I'm so glad to be able to come to you via the social media. And uh, so good to have you with me. And as you know, I've announced that I'm going to talk about, at least for the next couple of Wednesdays, uh, things I wish that I had known sooner. I could also say things I wish I'd learned sooner. Uh, and I know if I could see a show of hands that you could also probably go into a litany of things, at least a few main things or major things you wish you'd known sooner. And uh, so the, the value of a message like this is that when I tell you what I wish I'd known sooner, then you can learn it now. So you're not saying later, I wish I'd known that sooner. So we're going to deal with three topics tonight. And the first one I want to talk to you about is something that uh, is not really new to me uh, regarding something I wish I'd known sooner. But there was a time in my life where I really said to myself, wow, I wish I'd known this sooner regarding the word of God. And that is that from cover to cover, the Bible is about the plan of redemption. It's not 66 books, sort of standalone books that um, are just kind of doing their own thing and saying their own thing and they're not a part of a whole, but every one of those 66 books is a part of a beautiful unity that only God, the Holy Spirit could have put together because there were many, many different Bible authors over a span of almost 1,500 years. Think about that. So one would think that in 1,500 years, 40 or so authors would somehow say something that uh, was not what the others were saying, that departed from what the rest of them were saying. But no, one said the same thing as the next, and they add on to the next, and then the next one said something that complimented what the other one had said. And before you know it, when you get to the end of the entire word of God, you have this beautiful unity and it's all about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about the plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. For instance, Genesis records man's fall and immediately predicts a coming redeemer. Then you go to the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And that's the beginning of the lineage that God raised up uh, through which he would send his son. The call of Moses was not, not only to bring deliverance to God's people who were in bondage in Egypt, but the call of Moses was to give us the law. Moses was called the law giver. And what was the law all about? Well, it was to show us that there's no way we can live up to God's incredibly high standard of righteousness. In other words, the law showed us we needed a redeemer. So when you come to Moses and the Exodus and all of that, you're still tracking the plan of redemption through the Bible. And then you come to the festivals, the feasts, and the various observances like Passover, Feast of Trumpets, Year of Jubilee, Day of Atonement. All of these feasts and festivals and observances that God gave the Jews were all types and shadows and really signs with an arrow pointing down the tunnel of time to the future when God's son would fulfill all of those things. They were just shadows and types, but Jesus was the substance. And so we find there again, the word of God tracking the plan of redemption. Uh, the Old Testament, I like to say, was the New Testament concealed. 
And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The New Testament announces his arrival, narrates his death, burial, and resurrection, teaches us how to live in him victoriously, and then predicts his imminent return. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament opens with a prediction of Christ's first coming, while the Revelation announces his second coming. So the first book of the Bible talks about his first appearance. The last book of the Bible majors on his second and final appearance. The Old Testament opens with how the world began. The New Testament closes with how the world will end. It's a beautiful unity. The Bible, again, is not a big book containing 66 smaller books that all sort of do their own thing and stand alone, but it's an incredible tapestry of 66 books intricately woven together in one grand theme, and that theme is the fall of man and God's plan to send a redeemer to save us who was the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I've learned to do, no matter what Bible book I'm in, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if it's Job, I've been reading Job in my devotional lately, whatever book I'm in, I've learned to look for Jesus in that book because Jesus is somewhere in that book. Uh, Job, I read just this week that Job said, one day uh, my Redeemer is going to return. I'm going to stand in his, re- in, in his presence at the end of time. I know that my Redeemer, he uses the word Redeemer, liveth. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And at the end of time, I'm going to stand in his presence. So there's Jesus right in the book of Job. You will find Jesus in any of the Old Testament books. Look for him, that scarlet thread, that beautiful uh, thread woven throughout all the word of God, and you will find the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament pointing to the future. In the New Testament, celebrating his coming, his death, burial, and resurrection, and his coming again. And so I wish I'd known earlier uh, that Jesus is what the whole Bible is about, stem to stern, because it would have helped really enrich my Bible study experience. So I challenge you, uh, whatever you're reading in the Bible, wherever you are in your personal devotional life, uh, look for Jesus in it, particularly in the Old Testament. Look for the types and the shadows and the signposts pointing down the tunnel of time to when Jesus is going to come. So I wish I'd known earlier that the Bible is all about the plan of redemption. It's a beautiful unity. Now, the second thing that I wish that I had known earlier is that the most dangerous false teaching there is, is 95% truth and 5% error. I wish that I had understood earlier just how deceptive the enemy can be and how skilled he is. Now, I'm not lifting up the devil, believe me. I never do, but I like exposing him. So let me just tell you that he's very skillful at being deceptive, at approaching in a stealth-like manner. He does not come walking up to you and me wearing a red suit, uh, carrying a pitchfork with a tail and horns and say, I'm the devil. No, the Bible says he comes to us in forms and shapes and appearances that are beautiful. I wish I'd known sooner that false teachers never look like false teachers. You know, when I was young in, in the things of God, and I had uh, come to Christ 
when I was 16 years old, as most of you know, I was in juvenile detention center and there I heard the gospel for the first time in my life. I was 16 years old. I was headed to court, maybe to prison. And God sent a Baptist preacher with, uh, I remember about three young people with guitars and they sang Jesus music. And then this guy got up and shared the gospel, this Baptist preacher, and I came to Christ. And it was a beautiful, powerful experience. But I knew nothing about the word of God. I knew nothing about warfare. Nobody followed up on me. You know, I wasn't handed the four spiritual laws or as we hand people at turning point, uh, let the journey begin. I didn't have any of that. Just after amount of, an amount of time, I was released from jail. I did go to court. I received probation. As you know, I never went to prison. But I was out there sort of blowing in the wind because I did not know you ought to read your Bible every day. Uh, there is, as I said, a thing called spiritual warfare. Uh, the enemy never stops trying to come after you. Uh, I did not know that I needed to get into a church. I didn't need, uh, I didn't know that I needed fellowship. I didn't know that I needed to get around Christian believers and make a break with my old friends. I just didn't know much at all, except that I had heard John 3.16, and that was it. Now, a couple of years later, I had an incredible, powerful experience with the Holy Spirit that uh, you can call baptism in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, touched by the Holy Spirit, overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, semantics don't matter. All I can tell you is that I had an incredible experience with the presence of God that was so strong on my life, I felt I was going to blow up if God did not stop. As a matter of fact, I looked up and said, God, if you don't stop, I'm going to die. It was just this overwhelming sense of the love of God. And this catapulted me into just being on fire for Jesus. I mean, a fire came into my heart, a powerful uh, motivation to seek Jesus. I mean, I fell in love with Jesus, just, just slap happy in love with Jesus. And I learned how to play the guitar uh, just three or four chords, mainly so I could sing songs to him in my little uh, apartment that I had. I uh, lived alone, little efficiency apartment. And every day I would get up and just sing songs to Jesus. And I then soon plugged into a little Bible study group. And I remember it was the first group that was anything like a church that I'd ever been a part of. But do you know what? Before long, within a couple of months, I remember a couple came to this group and they began to teach and they were very, very attractive. They were appealing. As a matter of fact, when, when the devil sends a false teacher, they appear, Paul the apostle said, as angels of light. They're very appealing, convincing, persuasive, attractive, eloquent. I mean, they grab you, they hold you. The devil's not going to send somebody that's going to immediately revolt you or repulse you. He's going to send somebody that's going to pull you in, that's going to draw you into who they are and what they're saying. And more of what they say, I've noted through the years, is true. More of what they say is true than not true. And that's what this couple did. They came into our midst and they began to teach and we would all gather around and we would worship Jesus with the old Jesus songs. And then this couple who had come out of nowhere 
We begin to teach the word of God. But you know, every time I left one of those meetings, I was troubled and I couldn't tell you why. And I got with a couple of my friends and I said, man, are you feeling what I'm feeling? I can't put my finger on it. But every single time we leave after listening to them, I feel troubled. I feel grieved in my heart. What's up with this? And, and so being really ignorant of discernment or not knowing enough of the word of God to really be able to point where their message was full of error, we pray, God, if these people, if this couple are not right, please expose them. Show us somehow. Well, it wasn't a week or two later that we were uh, meeting together once again and they were teaching and somebody did something and the man that was teaching turned to them and lost his temper and snapped at this person and something came over his face, his countenance changed and something truly wicked, evil, uh, sinister, off, unchristlike manifested long enough for me to say, that's what I needed to see. Now, what God gave me was discernment, but there is a better way to recognize false teaching. And that's to know the word of God well enough that you can pick apart what you're hearing and say, that's not in the word of God. But listen, I, I wish that I had known sooner that when false teachers come on Christian television, because there's false teachers on Christian television, in Christian radio, uh, in Christian bookstores, I've never seen personally more false teaching in my life than what is out there in the Christian world right now. As a matter of fact, if I could, if I could just give a gift or bequeath a gift to the body of Christ nationwide, the, 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 the body of Jesus right now, if God gave me the power to give the body of Christ a gift, I would immediately give the gift of discernment because I believe that gift is, is lacking. So many people are teaching things that are off. Uh, you know, their expertise is in dropping a falsehood right in the middle of truth. See, if they weren't saying true things at the beginning, you'd never, they'd never have your ear at all. But they say true things at the beginning. And once they have you listening, they drop in a falsehood. You know, like praise his name, they'll say, or God is good, or Jesus is king, or Jesus is Lord. And oh, by the way, the reason Jesus came was to reverse the curse so that you could be rich like Abraham. And we hear things like that and we say, oh, well, they were saying all kinds of things good at the first, so they must be right. But no, I've learned sometimes the hard way through the years that a, that a false teacher worth his salt, and I don't say that in a complimentary way, but the best false teachers say true things more than false things. They will pull you in and say things that you go, well, that's in the word of God. I heard that in the scripture. I've read that in the Bible. So this person must be right. But then the falsehood is dropped in. And that's how the cults grab good people. Uh, for instance, they'll say, Jesus is Lord. He died for our sins. And oh, by the way, an angel named Moroni visited me and gave me some golden tablets with writing on them that I have translated into a book that is right alongside the Bible and it's called the Book of Mormon. Now, some of you know exactly where I'm going with this. These false teachers come knocking on our door, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the cults that we all recognize, but also 
false teaching makes its way into the church of Jesus Christ by people just twisting enough scripture that you're not really being taught how to live the Christian life, who Jesus really is, what the Bible really says, but you're led astray a little bit here and a little bit there. And the only way, folks, and I just can't harp on this enough, to safeguard yourself against the false teaching of false teachers and false prophets that, remember, Jesus said would abound in the last days is to know your Bible. You've got to know your Bible. I wish I had known that like I know it now. It's like, say, in the 70s when I first came into the things of God. Oh, I read my Bible. I read it. But I didn't really, as I said in the first message, I didn't really connect the overall warp and woof of Scripture that from Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. It's about the plan of redemption and that every single one of the 66 books is about Jesus Christ somewhere in it. It's about Jesus Christ. I didn't understand the unity of the Bible. I didn't understand the Bible well enough to spot false teaching that took me some pain and some rough experiences to recognize as I went through my Christian journey. So if I could leave you with a, uh, you know, if I knew I was never going to teach again, if I knew if God said to me, Jeff, you've got one more time to preach one more message, I would no doubt teach you on the importance of knowing your Bible. Stop for a minute and think, how did Jesus defeat the devil? Well, you know how he defeated him. He defeated him by quoting the word of God. But how did the devil attack Jesus? He attacked Jesus by quoting the word of God, but misquoting it. And if Jesus had not known the word of God really, really well, the devil would have deceived him. So I want you to note that Jesus won his spiritual victory by knowing the word of God. Of course, he was the word, but even being the word, Jesus was a human being. He was all man, all God, all God, all man. And being all man, as well as all God, Jesus had to learn as well. Jesus studied the scriptures growing up as a boy. He assimilated the scriptures. He fully understood with his brilliant God mind, the word of God. But it says in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, he, he had to learn through suffering. Jesus had to study. Jesus studied the word of God. Why did he study the word of God? Because Jesus knew that he was going to enter into a vicious warfare with Satan that he was God's Messiah. And he knew that God's enemy, arch enemy, the devil, is defeated by one thing. Folks, he's defeated by the truth, but not just any truth, not just factual truth, but he's defeated by the truth of the word of God. Now, the Bible says Jesus is the captain of our salvation. We are to look unto him, the author and the finisher of our faith. We're to study his life. How did he walk? How did he talk? How did he do warfare? How did he win? How did he comport himself around people? How did he love? How did he forgive? How did he fight the devil? How did he walk in victory where he never one time had to look up and say, Father, forgive me. I shouldn't have said that or done that or thought that. Jesus Christ, our Savior, never once had to ask God to forgive him. And let's look at him now. How did he win his battle? 
the same way we've got to. The way Jesus won it is how we've got to win it. And that is by knowing the word of God. He's in the wilderness. He's gone way deep into the Judean desert. He has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He's literally starving. His body is living off of itself. He is, he is down to the wire where he's got to have food or he's going to pass away. And look how the devil attacked him at the very point of his need. The devil never plays fair. He never, he, he's, he's not a good devil in any sense of the word. He, he doesn't play by rules. He's cruel. He's sinister. He's wicked. He's evil. And he does not play fair. He will always attack you and me at the point of our greatest need. Now, Jesus' greatest need was food. And how the devil attack him? Hey, son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're really the Messiah, you seem to think you are, then turn these stones into bread. Now look what Satan was doing. He was trying to get Jesus to misuse his power as the son of God, the very word of God. He was trying to get him to misuse it instead of using it for the glory of God and for the ministry of God. He was trying to get it to use uh, his the power of God for himself. To, to squander it on himself, to meet his own needs. And Jesus caught it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And now I'm only going to use that one example, but I want you to note that if Jesus had not known a misquote when it came to him, because again, note, Satan came to Jesus, not with some weird off the wall lie, but he came to Jesus quoting the holy, sacred word of God, but he misquoted it. And he does the same with you and me. He will, and there's always an if involved in it. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Uh, you know, if God really loves you, then you have every right in the world to go ahead and, and meet your need the way I'm offering it to you right now, instead of waiting on God to meet your need. And Jesus countered it with the word of God. Now, friend, we're no different. And I've got to tell you, the more I know the word of God, the more I recognize a misquote. And our world is filled with misquotes. All the cults use the word of God. The Mormons will come to your door and quote the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses will come to you and quote the Bible. The Moonies will quote the Bible. Uh, uh, false teachers always quote the Bible, but they misquote it. And listen, if you don't catch the misquote and you swallow that misquote, you have just swallowed poison. So again, I wish I'd understood sooner and known earlier how important it was for me to really know the word of God. It's why every day now, and I have for years, I get up and I get my coffee. As you know, I love coffee and God made it on the eighth day and said it is good. And um, I get my coffee and I sit in my chair and I open up the word of God and, because I know this. Today, I'm going to hear some misquotes. Today, I'm going to be confronted with some lies. Today, the enemy is going to try to get at me. Not next week, not next month. Today, he's going to try to get at me. And I've got to know the word of God. I've got to be sharp. I've got to be able to spot 
a, a half lie, a misquote, 90% truth, but 10% lie. I've got to be able to spot it and then quote the full truth and walk in that full truth. And that way, Satan's lies fall harmless to the ground. And he will leave me like he did Jesus until an opportune time. So dear church, you know that I love you, you know that I pray for you, you know that I've pastored you for many years now. And if I've got a broken record, if there's a mantra, if there's something you're gonna hear from me over and over again, don't be like me and say, you know, years down the road, I wish I'd known sooner how convincing a false teacher or a false teaching can be. Learn your Bible now. Open it up every day. Read a chapter, two chapters. Find a great devotional Bible where you can go through the Bible in a year. But listen, don't go without the Bible. Read it daily. And the more you read it, the more uh, you're not going to be vulnerable to deception. And the devil will leave you alone and tr go try to find somebody that uh, doesn't really know the word of God. So that's the second thing I wish I'd known sooner. Now, the last thing I want to share with you this time that I wish I'd known sooner, and this is totally different subject, but this came to me and I do wish I'd known it sooner. And that is that God leads by burden, not ambition. God leads by a burden, not ambition. Now, let me tell you what I mean. For the longest time, I didn't understand the difference between ambition and burden. I thought to be ambitious was a good thing. And I gotta, I'll confess to you, as a young believer, filled with the spirit, full of zeal for God, I was very, very ambitious. I was so ambitious. I wanted to take the world for the Lord. Nothing wrong with that, but I burned with ambition. I, I just wanted to be out ahead of the pack. I wanted to be doing more than most. I wanted to be knocking the ball out of the park. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But when I look back now, I wish I had seen that there is a difference between ambition and burden. And I'm going to explain that as we go on. Let me read to you what James said about ambition, because what we're about to see is ambition tends to be fleshly where a burden is something God given. Here's what James said. James said, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Now I'm reading out of James chapter three, verses 14 to 16. If you want to turn to it, James three, 14 to 16. James says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, notice how he says selfish ambition. All right. So that's what I'm talking about. Selfish ambition in your heart is something really uh, motivating your heart and your life. He said, don't be arrogant and, and lie against the truth. He said, now look at how he describes selfish ambition. This wisdom is not from above. It doesn't come from God, but it's earthly, natural, and even demonic. Wow, even demonic. James says that selfish ambition, which is fleshly, can even be demonic. And, I, and listen, I've seen a lot of people um, get so ambitious that, that I could almost say, it seemed to me, that eventually when they really got into it and it was totally driving their life, there was a demonic element to it. They were just so driven to make money or to be famous or to whatever had to do with a 
fleshly ambition that they really came, became overcome by something that was really kind of demonic. And so verse 16, he goes on and says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So clearly he's talking about something that is not from God. He said, it's not from above, it's not from God, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. Now that's ambition, selfish ambition. You know, I want to reach the pinnacle of my career. I want to live in a, you know, million dollar house. I want to drive, uh, you know, this kind of car. I want to make this much money. I want to be famous, famous, famous. I want to, uh, you know, I want to be known all over the world. I've got this ambition, selfish ambition. It's all about me, myself, and I. It has nothing to do with glorifying the Lord or living for Christ or lifting up his name. It's all about me and none about him. That's selfish ambition. Now, conversely, here's how God leads. God leads by a burden. The prophets often wrote about the burden of the word of the Lord. Now, let me say that again. The prophets of God often wrote about the burden of the word of the Lord. Notice they called it a burden, not a bad burden, but a an inner motivation that came from God, that was focused in God, that wanted to glorify God, that wanted to lift up the name of Christ, that wanted to promote the word of God, that wanted to do the will of God, a burden, a burden. And they explained it as an inner God-sent burden, a, a deep caring and a deep concern about a people, a, a person or a people group, a nation, their own, like the Jewish people, like the burden that Paul the apostle uh, said that he had that was so strong he literally said, and I've never been able to go here with Paul. I can't go here with Paul about a person on earth that I know. But Paul said, I would go to hell for the Jewish people. Read that in the end of the book of Romans. I believe it's chapter 11. He said, I would literally go to hell if my people, the Jewish people, could be redeemed. Now that's a burden. That's the burden of the, of the Lord. And I can't say that I've ever had a burden that strong. But I believe the apostle because he was moved on by the Holy Ghost to write that. It's in the word of God. So the burden of the Lord is when you have a spiritual burden for people, for his word, for his glory, for uh, exalting him, promoting him, um, spreading the word of God. It's a, it's a burden that could never and would never have come from you. It comes from him. Whereas the Lord said, selfish ambition doesn't come from above. The burden of the Lord always comes from, from above. Paul the apostle spoke of an inward compelling that came from the Holy Spirit, not personal ambition. He said in Acts 20, verse 22, and now compelled by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. Now notice, he said, I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit. I've got a burden. It's the burden of the Lord. Now folks, I believe that every child of God should sooner or later experience the burden of the Lord. I believe God will put something on your heart. Whether or not you're called to a full-time ministry like God called me, that doesn't matter. You're still called to be a minister 24-7. Yes, I'm, you know, I'm the pastor of a church, 
But the Bible says that every believer has been given a gift. And my experience has been with the gift comes a burden if you're paying attention. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of an inner burning that came from God's touch on his heart to deliver the word of God. Listen to what he said. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot hold it in. That's the burden of the Lord. Jeremiah said, you know what? I've had all this prophet stuff I can stand. I'm tired of being put in the stocks, of being the the brunt of everybody's jokes, of being ridiculed and mocked and slandered and lied about. I'm so sick of this prophet stuff. And so he said, I'm not gonna do it anymore. But he said, I could not escape the burden of the Lord, the inner fire in my heart to minister and preach the word of God. So here's what I'm wanting to relay to you tonight. Um, I've learned to walk, to discern between personal ambition and the burden of the Lord that manifests itself in my heart. I don't want to seek what I want, but I want to seek what he wants. And so I've learned and I want you to learn to pay close attention. Now, here's how you discover God's calling. You don't discover it by um, guesswork. You don't discover it by looking at your natural gifts. No, you discover the word of the Lord, the burden of the Lord, the call of God on your life, the gift of God on your life, you discover it this way. What moves my heart? When I look at ministry, what kind of ministry am I drawn to? When I'm in a church, you know, when I think about doing something for the work of the Lord, what draws me? What touches my heart? What gives me a burden? What sets me on fire? What moves me? What interests me? What uh, do I keep uh, being drawn back to and thinking about over and over again? Is it ministering to the sick? Is it going to the homeless? Is it reaching out to the brokenhearted? Do I hurt all the time for hurting people? Am I pulled and drawn towards the suffering? Um, am I drawn to evangelistic outreaches? Am I drawn to hurting marriages, to reach out and, and try to minister to people who are in marriages that are troubled and maybe about to fail? Am I drawn to missions, teaching, preaching, ministering God's word? What, when I look at it, grabs my attention and more than that, grabs my heart because that's how the burden of the Lord comes to us. Paul talked about um, God, the God who is working in you, working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, the willing part is the burden of the Lord. It is God at work in you, both to give you the will, the desire, the burden to do it, and then the grace to accomplish it. I wish, if I could go back, that I had been able to distinguish between my ambition and the burden of the Lord. Because once you are tuned in to the burden of the Lord, you don't waste your time anymore on personal ambition. Ambition goes out the, out the window. And now I'm only living for the burden God put on my heart. I'll tell you tonight, my burden is the word of the Lord. My burden is to teach and to preach and to reach 
people with the word of the Lord. And that's it. I don't sing. I don't dance. I don't do cartwheels. I, you know, I do play guitar, but I'm, you know what? I'm not one of these multi-gifted people. I have one gift and that gift is my burden. And that burden came to me when I was 18 years old and I started yielding to that burden when I was 19. And now all these years, my entire life, I've been letting God lead me by the burden he put on my heart, the fire that is shut up in my bones. And you too, friend, watch me now, lock eyes with me now, listen to what I'm saying as we close. You have a gift from God and the gift that God gave you, if you will pay attention, he will, he will give you a burden. If you'll pay attention to what tugs on your heart, what God interests you in, what pulls on you when you look at all the myriad of possibilities you could get involved in church work about. Pay attention and whatever pulls on you, then yield to that, go to that and try responding to that and submitting to that. Pursue that. Paul said, earnestly desire, desire spiritual gifts and God will lead you by the burden of the Lord. I hope you can learn it now so you don't have to go through a lot of wasted time chasing selfish ambition, but yield to the burden of the Lord for his glory and God will bless you for it. Well, I hope you've enjoyed tonight like I have. And next time we're going to get even more personal and more uh, transparent as we talk about things that I wish I'd known sooner. God bless you. Have a blessed week. We'll see you Sunday.